Welcome to Troll Black TV's weekly podcast where we feature the world's most extreme athletes. This week, we're proud to introduce Justin Jong, one of the most sought-after climbing coaches in the world today. Justin has coached many of the country's top climbers like Alex Pujo, Daniel Woods, and Emily Harrington, just to name a few. Coming from a background of being, as Justin likes to say it, one of the strongest climbers you've never heard of, <laughs> which isn't entirely true because those in the know knows Justin is an incredibly accomplished climber who, along with Tommy Caldwell, established the first all-free ascent of Magic Mushroom on El Cap, which before Don Wall was hailed at 514A as the world's most difficult all-free big wall. It's from that experience that Justin fine-tuned his training, both mentally and physically, incorporating the heart rate monitor in his routine, that he realized he could really help others take their game to a much higher level. Which is why I invited Justin onto our show. I believe he has a wealth of information that can help transform our way of thinking when it comes to peak performance and training. Justin, welcome to our show. Before we start here, I'd like to just go you just have an impressive checklist. I think a lot of people are not aware of the fact of what you've actually done in your past. I mean, like you did Magic Mushroom, Premier Wall, and you know those were not minor achievements. Those are huge. Yeah, it, I kind of have the reputation of being the str- back when I did climb more often as the strongest climber you've never heard of. Yeah, well, I, mean, I don't know if I would put you in the category I've never heard of, but I mean, like the list of climbs you've done and, and you realize it's going, holy shit, I mean, these are all free. It, it, I know it seems like a, a no-brainer. If you train, you'll be better. But at what point did you realize that training was the key to unlocking your untapped potential? Ooh. Uh, that's an interesting question because when I um, started, when I trained for myself, I really never had the agenda of getting physically stronger. I just really wanted to get better uh, skills-wise, and I was really trying to figure out what are skills, how do you break that down, what does it look like. Um, And so most of my training back when I did climb was more focused on that. Um, But now, as I just recently, in the last couple months, I've been getting excited about climbing again, and I would approach my own climbing very differently now. How so? Uh, I would incorporate more strength or more... uh, I I had the fortune... I just happen to be genetically, not gifted, but genetically sound body where I didn't get a lot of chronic injuries um, when I was young. So now I need to do a lot more weight training and that sort of thing just to keep my body more healthy. Um, but I would do more fitness type stuff now. I really wish I did more. And fingers even. I I mean, I think naturally I have pretty strong fingers, but I never trained it when I was younger. I just sort of, it came with just climbing. Now I would do more finger intensive stuff and I would actually maybe campus. I never, I never campused in my life. Uh, I was always embarrassed. I was like, oh uh, yeah, <laughs> I might be able to climb five fourteen pretty easily, but I can't campus. <laughs> you know, speaking of the campus, you know, you know, when you first get on it, for most people, it seems like they're just learning how to do the dead point. You know, just to yeah, t- get that timing down so you can fire up and reach the next hold. And then there seems to be the next level where you're not only doing that, but you're, you're, you're actually pushing down as if you're doing a back of ladder, and you're actually pushing down with the lower arm, and you're reaching even higher, and you're walking off and reaching the control okay. instead, of just, instead of just throwing. And I've been watching climbers do that, and I'm just going, holy shit, that's a whole other level. I mean, I used to be able to do that in the back of ladder, but I had not been able to duplicate that on the campus board. Um, yeah. It's hard. And that's... And that's just what happens when climbers start, I mean, like bouldering is really popular, and I work with a lot of boulderers, and um, like V10, V9, V10, for a lot of males is where they take that lower hand and they have to keep pushing down. 
so they can open up their body rather than just pulling it to their chest and reaching that static mm-hmm. where they got to expand further. And that's where I find that very beneficial. Have you found that there's certain exercises that will help you push down even more other than just the doing push downs with weights? Uh, well, like I'll do offset pull-ups. You can do them with like I, the preferred method is like on a bar, and then you have an atomic bomb on the lower hand, and you're doing a one. A lot of people focus on the upper hand where they're focused on doing a one arm, but mm-hmm. I actually try to do so. You're doing the bar plus the uh, atomic bomb, so they're working together. So you actually push, when you get to that point where you've pulled up, you actually push down with the ball? Yeah, and push. so it's a fluid motion, too. It's not mm-hmm. kind of choppy. There's there's natural breaks for people. I'm just trying to make it more fluid. Mm-hmm. Um, then the other one is just like you mentioned on the campus board. Um, and then also just on, I do a lot of system board work with people and just kind of gentle power spots to get them to open up with that lower hand. A lot of times people are they're grabbing with their upper hand and if it's a challenging move for them, their focus goes to their upper body and that lower hand stops kind of doing its job and therefore you get that fallout. That's one of the reasons why you get that fallout motion. So just working with people on that and just get that uh, the body to just naturally keep pushing with that low hand. Big believer in the training with the heart rate monitor. Did you train with a monitor when you're preparing for match mushroom? Oh yeah, yeah. How, how did you incorporate all that data that you were gathering? Uh, well, my my primary observation with the heart rate monitor was I would get my heart rate to a certain point and then I would just mentally collapse. I would no longer be able to function well on the wall. I couldn't execute the moves. I would just kind of boggle down. Uh, and a lot of times it was like kind of a relatively lame heart rate of like 160, 165. And I realized that it's tired enough where a climber feels that doubt. Like, oh, I don't think I can do this. And they hesitate. Um, and then just learning how to push that threshold up gently. So just training in, I would say, a 20-beat zone from your max down. So you're in that threshold a little bit longer. You get kind of calibrated. Because in theory, you should be able to climb near your max heart rate if you know exactly what you're doing. And uh, that was my idea. And with enough practice and time, I definitely was. I was getting... I was falling probably around 195 on sport routes. So that's where your heart rate was at, 195. Yeah. So interesting. And some people can get it up like a little bit higher. Very few can get it that high though. Most people, when they try it out, and they don't take it to heart because it takes years to kind of get that change. And um, they will, I'll take an initial read with people when they're around. 160 is that natural break. 155, 160, 165 is a very natural, without any awareness. Um, And then people just, they just learn. It's just teaching them how to breathe properly, how to um, function well with a high heart rate. Focus on the task at hand. Don't get distracted by how pumped you are, how tired you are. Um, now, would you actually you watch your heart rate uh, while you're climbing to monitor your... Um, well, technology like, back then was very different. Mm-hmm. Like I had to strap a watch to my harness. And then the only time I could actually get a read was when I was at a rest, and I would have to actually right. look at it. Or if mm-hmm. I was actually bouldering or climbing on a tread wall or something in the gym, I could keep a closer eye. But now with phone apps, um, hell, your belayer can, you just keep the phone on the ground or you can just wear it somehow on your arm or something and you can take a, you can look at where your heart rate is while you're actually mm-hmm. climbing. Um, but, and I would do that on my projects outside out of curiosity. 
Like where is where am I getting? What's happening here in this mm-hmm. area? So So if you saw your heart rate spiking to one eighty five, one ninety, you know that you've got to stop and, and and rest somehow? Uh get it back down. It's more the it's kind of the cadence. Every route every climb has a different it's like music. It has a different flavor. Um mm-hmm. and just kind of seeing what the pattern is. And then I can go to the gym and kind of uh, simulate that and condition my body and kind of get relatively similar rests on like some sort of bouldering wall nearby and just learning how to... So if I'm getting my heart... If I'm going through the first crux and my heart rate's getting to 185 and then I get to a certain stance, what size holds are they? I'd start larger and then I'd train my body to get kind of drop it down, and then I'd shrink with time to be on smaller holds than actually on my project. That makes total sense. Well, you talk about the ultimate intensity. You know, you're getting to that level where you're completely in the zone. Where where the zone to me is being absolutely present and enjoying what you're doing or being not distracted by what's the future and past. Um. But there's intensity level, too. Like, a lot of people can't even get into the zone. If that they don't even know what it is. Were, yeah, they struggle with it, or it's very random. They're like, oh, I'm climbing really well, or I just climbed, and they don't think much about it. On days where they're not climbing well, they put a lot of analysis in it, and they're just like, um, they have they come up with a massive list of why they're not climbing well. But on yeah, we call it the, the book really, of excuses. Yeah, which we as humans excel at, rather. <laughs> We're brilliant at it. Um, but when we actually are doing the right things, we don't really take the time to reflect and wonder, what is it that made me climb so well? Um, for a lot of people that are working stiffs, it's, just life is going well right now. Work is going well. It's not super stressful. Family life is going well. Those external conditions are really important to be able to perform. Um, and we don't think of it that way. We're like, oh yeah, I just I, I've been working a ton. I'm pretty well rested. I've been training. And no, it's like, dude, no, you're exhausted. You you don't have the mental energy to perform well. Um, other people they just can't stay present. They're always worried about screwing up. The most common thing I see with people is they're so freaked out over what the sequence is and what their beta is for their hands and feet and that they're going to put their hands and feet on the right dots at the right time. And They're constantly in the state of future and past, boggling, and they're never in the, in the now moment. And just teaching people to, like when they're previewing, you have to – physically rehearse the moves on the ground. Like, your body needs that biofeedback. Like, you need to rehearse it like an actor and review those moves. Like, I should, if I'm watching my athlete from across the room previewing, I should know exactly where they are. I should also, if it's the first time on it, be able to tell, like, oh, yeah, this is where you think the crux is. This is where your concerns are. I can read your body language. And with time, hopefully, they can be aware enough to go, like, oh, yeah, you're right and come up with positive solutions for their concerns. And, but their body experiences it. Usually people are very uh, cerebral, and a lot of climbers I think are, as climbing becomes more mainstream, I think this is becoming less true possibly. But historically a lot of climbers are highly intelligent, math and science people, and over-analytical and they use their brain solely on the ground when they're reviewing stuff and their body doesn't get any of that feedback and it's a shame that because they think that the brain is going to do the magic on the wall and it's like, dude, your body has to be just, it's on autopilot and knows what to do most likely if you're a high-level climber. What I spend a lot of time doing is people to, to get them to understand where to use your actual brain and then where do you, like, how do you build intuition within your body so your body fires and executes the right things, the correct responses under stress? Yeah, no, one of the best movies that I remember seeing is um, 
peaceful warrior. And they really uh-huh. get into it talking about the zone. Um, and I just always thought that when he, he fi- it finally clicked for him, all of a sudden, everything around him just disappeared. And it was just like yeah. everything just got magnified. And every time that I found myself in the zone, which I really focused on trying to get into all the time, um, that's what happens. People ask me, what, what were you thinking? I said, oh, actually, I wasn't thinking of anything. Mine is completely blank. Um, it's when you're yeah. thinking. I think that that's, when, that's what screws you up is when you start thinking. You start thinking about, yeah. like you said, you're screwing up the moves, screwing up the sequence, what's someone thinking down below, what, you know. Do you think we as climbers get addicted to it? To the zone? Yeah. That, that, I, that I think so. Sensation. Like there's, I think there's a chemical release where we get, we get, we're like junkies and we just need that fix of being present and just in that magical state and ultimately it's near your limit, but more on an everyday level is just at an easier kind of easy flow state. And I don't know, I just feel like I get addicted to it and I just can't get enough of it. I always want another fix. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I find that uh, after a couple of days of not climbing, um, I better be training because that's the only other way that I can get myself into that zone. So <laughs> there's definitely something there of being addicted to it. We all know that breathing is critical. What techniques do you recommend when you're maxing out in the middle of a crux and your only hope of standing is skipping a clip? Uh, I mean, for me, I'm not a big fan of uh, taking big falls. I'm capable, but I don't like to. Some people actually like to, I think. Uh, Where I have to kind of surge up my, like, testosterone, or I just need to surge up my intensity. So I like to hear my breath in that, like, forced air breathing through my mouth with authority. I also firm up my face and just, I have a little bit of internal dialogue of, come on, don't be a wuss. Come on, step up. It's not, like, there's no real danger here. Um, and But the breath is more that fire breath, that forced air breathing. I like to feel it. And that's what I, I mean, I, I talk about a lot of the flow state, and I think there's your three climbing senses. And one is feel and hear um, the, the two... Other, and then the third one is seeing. Uh, but you hear and feel your breath. And you also start to feel the expression on your face. And you have to, when I look at it, like if I'm coaching someone, a lot of people don't shift into that face of determination of just, um, I'm determined. Like, like, the, like they're gonna going to fight for to, it. Yeah. Like there's no nothing else but do it or die. And when that happens, my job as a coach is a boom, go back, feel what your face was. And they're like, I don't remember. And then I mimic it the best I can. And then it's like every time you experience something like that, I need you to recall what your face is. Because before you go into that crux, you should stimulate that facial expression. So you know it's like experiencing that gear and just kind of like, this is where I'm going to. And then you rise up, I think. It's easier to rise up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talk about the eyes. When did you realize that there was a direct correlation between the eyes and the level of your anxiety, or intensity, I should say? Uh, or it's a, your, your eye movement. There's eye movement, and then there's facial expression, which has a lot to do with your eyes. And... It was quite a few years ago, but it's it's re- learning how to regulate intensity. Some people, they're well. There's eye movement. I'm, I'm all over the place here. So there's eye movement. So your ability to keep your eyes on the task, and it's like boom, that's where I'm going. So if I'm watching, like I review a lot of video footage, and when I'm reviewing it, I'm looking to like do is it easy for me to identify where they're going and when they're going to go? And so eye movement is important. So their eyes are all the way through the task and they 
see, and then they hold eye contact through that. Now, the next thing is, is to, when you get to an easy section, you look up and you like, look, take the lay of the land. Where am I going? What am I doing? The eyes need to soften. So the facial expression needs to soften. Your mouth needs to open up probably a little bit so they can see the big picture. And then most climbers excel at that, that intensity look where their brow changes and they become very singular with their eyes. Like they're just, it's a hard face and it's very singular, and their vision, their view is very small. It can become very pinpoint. Where with a soft face or soft eyes, you see the big picture, and it's like, oh, they're all the pieces. And most people don't fluctuate well with that. Then there's this facial expression or the eyes of what is your intent. Like there's this kind of double-tag look of like, oh, I don't know, what I, I, you're hesitating. And usually when I see that look, I'm just like, down, And I'm like, you, I need you to recall that, that twitching in your eyes, your pupils. And that's what I'm looking at when I say eyes, is your pupils. And the pupils will start kind of going from one thing to another, and there's that moment of doubt. And there's nothing wrong with it. But if you don't become aware of it, it just, it's a train wreck just wa waiting to happen. And if you catch it early, you can keep the train on the tracks. But most people, they just, it, it just takes a life of their own, and they just perpetuate. And I can't say that. I mean, I'm totally guilty of it, which I love right now because I'm starting to climb again. I'm track climbing, and it's that same feeling. They're like, uh, and the eyes are all over, and it's just like, okay. And just finding that, being present, one thing, hold eye contact, enjoy what you're doing, Climb with intent. So, so when you catch yourself right in the middle of it, uh, and you find yourself, you, you know your eyes are darting around, you know you're starting to lose a little bit. What technique do you use to calm that back down and, and regain control? Well, the first thing is, is celebrate that you actually caught yourself. Mm -hmm. And you got to treat your like. Most people are just hard on themselves, like, God, I did it again. Damn it. Why am I doing that? And it's like they treat themselves like bad dog. And I need to go the opposite way, which is, oh, good, I caught myself. That's great, almost, where you, you get that positive response of there's some level of self-awareness. Now, what you need to do is what I like to do, and it's working with someone to figure out what's best for them, but they get in a, they're in a, you need to ideally be in a balanced position, balance point rather than a, a, mate, a moment of stability. So they're in a balance point on the wall. And you, I like to drop my eyes. Some people like to look at the next handhold. Some people like to look at the next foot. But you singular, you bring your eyes to a single focus point that's kind of meaningless. Soften the eyes as much as you can. Hear your breath, reconnect, slow everything back down, and then you can ramp back up. And the better you get at that, it can happen in seconds. Just a couple seconds, you can just like, boom, get yourself back into a manageable state and then come out. Most people at first are, it's just like this drama thing, and it's just like they get worked up, and first I teach them how to do it by hanging on the rope, like they get all worked up, and it's like, nope, I want you to take, take, calm, calm down, feel your eyes, slow it, feel it. If you can't do it well by hanging, there's no way you're going to be able to do it on the wall. So first exactly. do it with the hanging, then do it, start doing it on the wall, on easy holds. Maybe you go off route, and that's your intent. Like, you're, you're practicing, you're training. Like, this is an important skill as a climber, is to get your act together. I mean, that's the ultimate high, is losing your shit and then getting your act back together. And that's really rewarding. I mean, we don't like, we don't aim to lose it, but it does happen. And by the end, if we get it back together, it feels really rewarding. So with time, we up the stress level, but it's just learning how to condition ourselves that way. So they calm, you calm your nerves down by just slowing down your breath, softening your eyes, and you know, would you call that, because I know you talk about four different levels of breathing. 
So would that be like level one where you're just calming yourself back down? Yeah, you're going back. You're trying to bring it back down to the first year. That belly breath, that that soft state. Mm-hmm. And that's usually the first breath I think everyone needs to master is that belly breath. But you can't do anything impressive with just that. But that is the center of life. If you can't do that well, then you can't really go up from there very well. Like, you need to be able to regulate it. Mm-hmm. And when you're getting ready to get yourself fired up, how would would you kind of, like, gear up the breathing, go through the level two, three, and then to four? Um, how would you go about doing that? Uh, if I'm warming up for... If I'm warming up for my project and I know I'm going to tap into most of those gears realistically, in my warm-up process, I'll touch base. I mean... Most people don't warm up thoroughly. They warm up their body so they don't get injured. Great, and I don't disagree with that. But there's kind of like three phases. There's warming up your body so you don't get hurt. Second one is get your systems in check. And then the third one is getting your rev your engine and going through those gears. So I use the analogy like a race car. So you warm up the car, you idle it, idle it and you just warm it up. Then you zip it around the racetrack and you're feeling good. You're kind of playing with how the course is feeling, how the car is feeling, how you're feeling, and getting everything in sync. And then the last phase is driving through those gears, and that's your breath. That's your engine. And learning the timing of it, of, like, for rope climbing, it's, it's mostly in a low gear, and knowing how to spike it. For bouldering, you're spiking it and knowing how to lower it down for a moment and bring it back up, most likely. Mm-hmm. But you're playing with your that sports car. And most people warm up like they own a Toyota or a Honda or something. <laughs> That's true. Where you, where you just never have to change the oil. You never have to do any maintenance if you don't want to. And you just start it, and it just goes forever. But the reality is it's not a very impressive sports car. And you want one of those European finicky sports cars that's a pain in the ass, but when it's running, that baby's running great. So you have to be really in tune with your body and what's actually happening. So when you warm up for the day, you're just seeing how you and your body are performing and getting everything is working as well as you can for that day. But most of us just sort of think of the warm-up process as like, yeah, I started my car and it kind of ran for like five minutes and I just took off and I'm good. And it's like, well, okay. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I, I do the same thing. And I'm just curious because you talk about four levels, but then you also talk about level 10 breathing. What's level the difference 10. there? Level 10 breathing? Yeah, what, what is level 10? <laughs> Read it somewhere and it was connected to your name. I'm like, level 10? I thought you talked about four levels. I mean, Where's level 10? I did. I don't know what level 10 is. I have no idea. <laughs> it's probably level 4 where uh, you're just all pissed and firing, I imagine. Well, that might be a scale of 1 to 10 and where yeah. your intensity is. And as you go up the scale of intensity to 10, there there's much more potentially holding your breath or scream that scream breath. And, uh, yeah, that's probably what I meant. Yeah, because there is a there is a moment when uh, you know you are just full on. You're hitting that 185, 190 heart rate, and you're just breathing. As I mean, you're like a locomotive. At least I am. Um, yeah. You know, at at what point do you find yourself uh, holding your breath? Is it like for the precise move or like a clip or something? Oh, exactly. I mean, clipping or placing gear. You want to hold your breath. You create stability. When you hold your breath, you create tension. That's what your core is great at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you're going to a, a hole that requires accuracy, then, yeah, you're going to become more static. Um, but with more modern-day climbing, it's much more. there's a lot more momentum in it. And it's getting that dead point to lengthen a little bit. And the timing of the... <laughs> 
that core mm-hmm. engagement or that lack of breath lengthens that dead point so you and you keep driving up with your body and you, you get a nice soft catch. Um, and that's where I think it's that timing of the breath, which I think is the new thing for me to be that I like playing with. Kind of reminds me of uh, martial arts in the sense where at the peak of your move, when you're throwing a kick or a punch, that you, you would release some air. Um, I'm seeing more and more climbers incorporating that when they're doing something, a hard move. Yeah, and I think it's a lot like martial arts where when you make that, that scream breath, you, there's that timing, like when that moment of contact, that's like you touch that hold, you, you, that apex of your core engagement and you don't have any flop in your body, uh, but also the intensity. You hear that intensity. I think a lot of people think that they tried really hard, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. And when you start making noise, you tap into a whole, that, that, it's that beast inside you. And you're tapping into something that a lot of people don't tap into. Or there are the individuals that tap into it all the time, which maybe don't know how to manage that beast, and they're more likely to actually get injured if their body's mm-hmm. not moving very efficiently. Yeah, you're a big believer in uh, supersetting two or four routes back-to-back. How many sets do you recommend when they do that? I kind of goes back to where you your fitness level. Everything's calibrated to what's best for you and where you are with climbing. Um, but the reality is I don't like to do, like, you're referring to the supersets of, like, three climbs back-to-back. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like a... Are you, and if you're using a heart rate monitor, um, are you objective to like get it as high as possible and then bring it back down afterwards and that's your rest? Well, how I run that routine is the first one is to get you pumped and to get your body kind of feeling tired, to make you vulnerable, that they're, you're in like, oh, I don't feel all that great right now. So you're in limbo. Then you touch the, you lower down to the ground, the belayer pulls the rope, and the belayer tells you, okay, I want, and your belayer needs to know you well, and tells you, like, okay, I want you to do this one next. And hopefully they're all familiar. And you pull the rope, and then you have time to preview that climb, and that's your rest period. If you choose not to preview it, then you're right on the wall. But you preview it, you go through once or twice really quickly, um, and then you go again. And ideally, the belayer is picking a climb where you are falling near the summit. So they need to calibrate it for what where your fitness level is. So you're just on that verge of you might make it, you might not. There's a little bit of unknown. It's familiar enough, you know what to do, but can you execute it while being tired? Mm-hmm. Can you execute your beta? Do you know how to... Like, don't fall doing something wrong. Fall doing it right. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think we often just fall not doing with something right. And that's why we're always, like, trying not to screw up our beta. But we don't, like, we, like, oh, I can move my right hand up again. Well, you know you need your left hand there, so why are you doing that? Well, because I can, but I'm getting a higher point if I do. It's just this terrible behavior in the body where it's just like, if I'm going to fall, I'm going to fall as high as I can, but I have no, there's no, there's dead end. I'm climbing into a dead end, I know it, but at least I'll get high. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a lot of there's sense. No glory, there's no glory in falling, moving your foot, even though like, for you to do the next move, you've got to move your foot, but there's no glory in moving your foot. Like, oh yeah, I got a new high put point by moving my foot. I mean, we really don't have that conversation. So would you recommend um, that someone incorporates this once or twice a week, or would you just do it like once a week to supersetting? Oh, it depends on what your cycle is. But if you're – I think it's a great routine, and I would only do it once a week. Mm -hmm. Um, I think if you're doing it twice. Would you do like two sets of three or four, or would you do more than that? 
I would do one at first, get get to know the routine and how best to do it, and mm-hmm. then do maybe two, maybe do two just to feel it. But two to three is best. <coughs> Excuse me. Two to three sets is about best because mm-hmm. you're that's between that's six to nine ones, which is a fair exactly. amount in gym. It really is. Yeah, you also talk about incorporating macro cycles. Could you tell us more about that? Well, that's something that I, it seems to make sense. Uh, I never did this when I was younger, but kind of going through general cycles, like base fitness, then maybe fingers and power, maybe some recovery type stuff, and then a performance phase, and setting up your weekly training routine with that in mind. Um, and I keep—I like to keep it fairly simple, but and focus more on what our objective is for that month and for your personal objective. And that's why I'm not a—I always hesitate about just like what's perfect because it depends on what your needs are. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just there's no perfect plan. I've seen so many people struggle with trying to get that perfect plan, which I think is great that they're striving for that, but the reality is is there isn't, and you're always going to be in flux. Your needs are always going to be changing. Um, If you and your friend are both projecting the exact same 13A, your needs might be very different. But your macro cycles might follow the same thing. So if you're sending in October... You might be starting in August or so through your cycles for that peak performance in October. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of people don't do they. What I've seen is they like okay, I'm going to start training, and then they push too hard too soon and they break. And I think that's why I always like to start with base fitness where. There's a little bit of volume. The climbing is relatively easy. And then there's also fitness routines because a lot of climbers' fitness is pretty poor. And you just get, hopefully, bring up your intensity in a way where you're not, um, like, doing finger stuff. Your your tendons and stuff are very, there's a fine line before you break. Um, And I often just see people, the campus too long or they uh, they add too much weight to them when they're hangboarding, trying to keep up with their friend. <laughs> and it's just destined to, for them to break. But the macro cycle is just a general guideline of what is the overall theme for the month. Mm-hmm. So how many cycles do you think you can go through in a year? I think two, if you're a seasoned climber, I think two, maybe, not really three, but two realistically. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one is obviously a lot more productive. Um, but I, I, some people just train like they're always training. And it's like, dude, you can't always be training. Now that's just your standard. Like you're you're exercising all the time, um, so. But yeah, because you yeah. emphasize uh, training heavy and performing light. And, yeah. You know, in a sp- in, a, in a sport that counts every gram, how does one find that balance of training a little heavier and going lighter when you're performing? Well, like when you're. Just so your body has something to feed off of. So early, the early cycles that you're going through, you are um, that you actually have. I just say this because I've seen so many climbers where you see incredible gains, which is very risky by losing a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And they do that, and you see great, great gains. Like wow, I'm climbing so much better. And then they get addicted to it. Like. I want to keep climbing well all the time, so I'm just going to stay really light. 
and they are too light for too long for what their body makeup is and maybe how they climb or what their style is. And it's, they need, a lot of times people, and this is just, a, I'm talking about the obsessive people that love to train and love to perform, where it's just like put a little bit more weight on when the, during the season that doesn't really matter. Like it's good for your body. Um, yeah, don't eat a bag of chips every night. That's not the kind of weight that we're looking or have too many beers. But exactly. have substance on your body so you ha- your body can feed itself rather than like I put a one calorie in my body and my body consumes that because it's like it's craving it. Like it should have some extra. There should be a surplus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's not going to rebuild. You're going to end up getting yeah. injured. Well, that's just the thing is people get injured all the time for various reasons. Um and one of them is just because they're too light. And they don't have the energy level. They don't, like, I'll see this where people are too thin and they can't focus. They can't dig deep because there's no substance on their body. And it's like you're training. You have nothing on your body to, like, your energy levels are too low. Like, when my blood sugar drops, I can't focus. Mm-hmm. Even when no I'm coaching, and I'm not doing anything. I'm like, I need to eat just so I can focus here. Mm-hmm. Um, and as an athlete, you have to have substance. Like you can't be yeah, hungry all the time. It's just you're not on a diet. I yeah, think. no, I know. And at the same time, you know, you see groups like, for example, um, Lance Armstrong when he was doing the Tour de France, and this is beyond the whole scandal with him. Um, he talks about weighing his food to keep his weight uh-huh. at a certain level. Do you ever do that at all, or recommend that? Me personally? Yeah. I don't do that. I yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I'm not into diets, and I just like to eat food that I know where it came from. Um, like it has a natural source, uh, and eat reasonable amounts. Uh, yeah, how do you how do you determine your ultimate weight, the strength ratio? Have you come up with a formula at all of what some no. ideal weight? I think is? it's I don't because everybody's build is slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, and some people are naturally really thin, and they're gonna be really thin. And then other people are kind of heavy. Um, and that kind of what their build is and their personality is gonna dictate how their climbing style how they choose to climb. Um, so, but I, I was yeah. obsessing over measuring. I think it's really knowledge. It's, it's useful to know, like, how many calories am I consuming? But I think, I think eating healthy food, eating more greens and all that is brilliant. Yeah, Not, it really is. Things, I think that's all really good. But just like anything else, we like to obsess, obsess over things that matter. But are you? I mean, we're talking about a small fraction of a percentage of an improvement mm-hmm. over something that's gonna. It, it's time consuming in your life. Like maybe just chilling out and and having downtime and just sitting on the couch reading and spacing out is going to be healthier than you obsessing over exactly how many calories you're consuming and what you're consuming. That yeah. downtime. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Uh, Maybe I see someone, more <laughs> sometimes I'll see someone like getting ready to eat a burrito and I go, dude, um, maybe after you do the route, <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> hold that burrito weighs like five pounds. Like, <laughs> I did that when I was younger. I love to eat. I, I mean, I just couldn't get enough food. You know, oh, you're, you're one of them. <laughs> Me too. I can. I was anything. not now. Not now. <laughs> now I'm like oh, I can't do that. So I know. Now I'm on, I'm I'm stuck on a ballerina diet. It's like ridiculous. It's just, <laughs> crazy. I could eat anything before. <laughs> yeah. Now I forget to eat. I have to remember. <laughs> uh, how much time do you allow yourself? Like, let's say you've been training your ass off, and you got a route that you plan on doing, say, this coming weekend, how much time would you allow yourself for tapering? 
and cutting back. Well, if you went through a whole cycle, like if you were training for a couple months and it was a hard toll on your body, I think a lot of people, it's hard for people to feel comfortable with it. But if you tapered for two to four weeks, it's probably a good thing if you worked hard for a couple months. Um, And what would that taper look like? I think it's just like you're doing whatever kind of body maintenance you might need to do, like you really need to. Like my shoulders are vulnerable, so I have to stay up on that, uh, that sort of thing. So you're doing, taking do your body care stuff you stay up on. But you warm up, you perform, and then once you're kind of tired, call it a day. And that's what it tapers. Just, I mean, that tapering is like you just built yourself a new race car. And now you have to learn how to drive it. And that's what that taper period is. Like you're not building, you're not putting on new parts, you're not doing anything. You're just getting used to what you have now. And your body is like repairing and it's healing and you're getting that adequate rest and your mind is reconnecting with it. And um, It sometimes takes a while. I'm always shocked. I've learned that a week is definitely not enough. But often people will start training a month and a half before something. And the reality is you don't have a, like, your taper period can be really short then. And ultimately your gains are going to be a little bit less. So, but if you, I notice that usually people go through a training cycle, they stop training, they relax, and then about almost a month later they're like, wow, I'm climbing really well right now. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that. And it's not right after it's not right after they're done training. Like, okay, I took a week off. I'm I should be go ready to go, right? I'm peaking to go. And that's also a personality thing. So some people are just so jonesing that they're just full of psych. Yeah, okay. yeah. They're probably ready to go right then and there. <laughs> I'm so, done my last uh, my last training workout was yesterday, I'm ready to go tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, you've trained with a number of super elite athletes uh, like Daniel Woods and Alex Pujol, just to name a few. How were you able to improve the performance, and and what did you learn by training them? Um, for those upper end athletes, we all have demons, and hopefully, creating an atmosphere of rapport where we can be honest about those demons. And it's usually not getting them stronger. It's getting them to be able to perform well on the day that it matters. And a lot of times people believe these amazing climbers always have amazing days, and they don't. They're human just like the rest of us. Um, And they have doubts, and they they're down on themselves. So they're they're insecure about things. And it's creating an environment where we can be honest about that and almost where I can get to the point of, I, I hate to use the word poking fun, but we talk about the elephant in the room. Like, oh, you're that's happening again. It's happening. And it's just kind of like, yep, you're right. And we just diffuse it. Um, but... It's getting them to perform well on demand. And they might be able to do it better than most people, but like you, like we were earlier talking about earlier, it's just that state of flow and how we jones for it. And those elite athletes, I mean, you get it all that sensation all the time, and you just want it all the time. And then you also want it on performance day, especially those comp climbers. They're like, I need it now. And I hear everyone sending, or I like I don't know, or all that pressure that's put up, that you perceive is on you. So, yeah, that pressure that we all put on ourselves re- reminds me of a question that one of our listeners. There's a few listeners that have uh, provided some questions for, her, and Linda Mordicate had a question along this vein here. She asked. How do you tune out the noise and the negative chatter when you're battling the fear of failure and disappointment of others? 
Uh, it means that you're probably not warmed up enough or you're not in that right state of mind. And when that chatter starts going, it's really hard to get it under control, but it has a lot to do with kind of dropping your eyes, lower your intensity, and bring back that, that focus. Usually when that chatter happens, we're mentally tired, we're vulnerable. Um, but with those athletes, it's training them to be warriors that are going out on to the medieval battlefield, not fearing death, and just being kind of excited to be out there and see what is going to happen. And that you're going out there to put on an amazing show or a performance or to do something where you're like, it's that, that moment where I tried my hardest and I still didn't make the top, but I still am proud of myself. Like that felt good. And experiencing that in your training more often. But that chatter, that noise, it gets going because there's that doubt. And often it leads to your eyes are darting. When your eyes start darting, you hold your breath. When you hold your breath, you start to panic. Or where there's lack of breath engagement, you start panicking. And that chatter gets louder and louder and bounces back and forth. And every horrible scenario pops up in your head. Um, and it's just learning how to diffuse it. Oh, and it's usually one or the, it's usually learning how to, some people are eye dominant and some people need to get oxygen to them. So it's engaging their breath. But those two are so tightly related that that noise and that chatter happens. Like if you just sit at your desk and just move your eyeballs back and forth and you start holding your breath, you're going to start getting a little anxious. And that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Learning how to diffuse that. Yeah, this next one is from uh, Cynthia Otto. She um, wants to know, when does normal soreness, like from working out, cross over into overtraining? And how does one know the difference in the warning signs when, that we should be aware of that you're actually injuring yourself? If it's pinpointed aches, it's probably too much. If it's overall fatigue uh, and, and tiredness, I think that's good. But if it's really isolated and like you're moving a joint and it's like, ow, that kind of, there it is. Right yeah, that's too much. And it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's your fingers or your elbows or your shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's doing that body care stuff, which is training. It is training. Rolling out, massaging joints doing band exercises. I mean, all that is actual training, but we don't do it enough. We don't put a high enough priority on it. And um, I think a lot of people just go, like if you're feeling that like too much, you're probably, your body's probably imbalanced. You got to figure that out. Like what's really going on here and solve that. And then the other one is, is training isn't about going to your max all the time. Training is about consistency and and just knowing, like, okay, today I can push a little bit harder. Today I should back off a little bit. More is not always better. And I think we learn that as we age because we mm-hmm. can't quality with it as much. It is that quality. And it, that quality is a hard thing to know when you're young. Quality mm-hmm. when you're young is like, God, I killed it last night. I just worked my ass off and I just felt like I was like that was amazing and it was when you get older it becomes too much or if you do that too often it gets too much Mm -hmm. it gives you that sensation when you're young like wow I was a beast the training exercise do you recommend for short climbers one to experience those explosive moves that's learning how to coordinate your knees and elbows so your knees move your mass, and your elbows, if you jump with your legs or extend with your legs, your elbows can kind of take over. But most people generate initially that momentum through their shoulders or their elbows, and, they're let, and they kind of post with their legs. Their legs are there to support the weight, but they don't actually generate. Mm-hmm. But learning how to generate with your, your toes or your 
your ankles, kind of, and your, your toes and your knees, and then take that momentum and coordinate it well with your elbows so you're able to open up your body. Most people, that once you go past kind of that pulling that hole down to your chest, we just stall out, and it's learning how to pull to our chest and keep going for those shorter climbers. And then the other thing that I, uh, drives me nuts is that notion that everything should be open-handed. Yes, you should train your fingers on the hangboard open-handed, but when you close your hand, you are gaining more control on a hold. And when you open-hand a hold and you pull it to your chest, it's really hard, and it's very it's very levery if you push it past your chest, if you push right. it down, if you're in your open hand. Correct. So a lot of modern-day climbers don't – I'm always shocked. Like, close your hand. You're like, well, I don't know how. That feels really weird. And it's like, well, I also heard it's bad. And it's like, yeah, in the 90s, in the 80s, in the 70s, those guys just crimped the hell out of everything because if they fell, they might die. Like, it's a lot further than they, this day and age when you take a fall. <laughs> and they did jack up their fingers. They did bear down and knuckle down everything. But this day and age, a lot of climbers don't know how to close their hand. And if you want to open up your body, you've got to close that hand so you're using your, your muscle groups, your, your shoulder and arm muscles to push that hell down. So... That's, I just say, like, yeah, you, you can overtrain and close your hand too much and cause finger injury, but there is a time and place for it. Like, you wouldn't want to campus all the time and close your hands. You wouldn't want to hangboard and always close your hands for sure. Um, but when you're performing and you grab a hole, there are times where you want to knuckle down on that baby and just, like, you have more control and you can push it down. Exactly. Knuckle down. I like that. Yes, next question is from uh, Jill Kopalkin. hope I got her last name right. Um, her question is, what suggestions do you have for enhancing or shortening recovery time? Is there anything I can do to speed up the process, recovery process? Um, I don't know. I guess that body care, but enjoy your, your recovery. I mean, that's more is not always better. Like, if your body needs to recover, enjoy it. Um, mm-hmm. But, yes, I think a lot of people don't do enough body care rolling out. Like, I've said it over and over again. Um, the other one is quality food. Get food in you. Hydrate well. Uh, rest. Sleep. Uh, we're always plugged in. I mean, we're always packing more and more in every day. I'm guilty of it. I'm at late at night. I'm doing my emails and stuff, and it's like sleep. Sleep is what your body needs. Yeah, I um, love sleep. Bath, bath, soaking in warm water. Mm-hmm. Uh, but warm water. It's just, but sometimes just don't be excited that you need rest. Yeah, rest is just as important as the training. It's not more. Oh. It's- it is part of training, but we we're always taught we're like that. It's that downtime is important. Enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Enjoy it. The last question is from Ava and Lucas from Poland. They want to know what type of training program do you recommend for people who can only climb on the weekends? They they uh, work at Google, and so they they work ten hour days, and they want to know hostel for a weekend where to train and climb five thirteen. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Weekend Warriors can do that. Um, might Not even more time, but uh, if you're a Weekend Warrior, that means you're resting on Monday and Friday, uh, and you're just you're so-called training or climbing Tuesday, Thursday. Wednesday should come in and out of your training. Some cycles you'll train on Wednesday, and some cycles you shouldn't train on Wednesdays. You should take that extra rest. Um but, I mean, just it's be patient, and it's not that quality. So a lot of my – so there's 
training. The training is following a structured plan, like here are the routine. But then there's the, the mindfulness of, okay, I need to work on this skill or these skills or this mindset and those sort of things. And adding that into your training routine. And that's the difference, I think, between my coaching and uh, just following a plan is like I'll review video of you climbing and it's like, oh, this is what you need. This is what I see. Uh, and it's not that I'm always right, that, but it's the starting of a conversation and kind of gaining a better understanding of like this is what's probably stopping you from progressing. Um, and actually seeing, like getting stronger is important, but there's more to it. And I think that training structure is great, but it's practicing also, not just like, practicing like myself, climbing like, the moves. But practicing, like holding, like we talked about eyes, practicing your breath, um, practicing contrast between tension and relaxation in your body, uh, initiating with your toes and then your knees and then like learning to use your elbows at the right time that you're, you're gliding through, your heels are moving through the transition, um, the sinking and the timing everything, that you're climbing well. So like my son plays soccer and I think with traditional sports it's easier to break down. So there's fitness training, like okay, I want you to run lines across. So you're running and running and running. And then there's skills. Skills is going around the cones. V1, V, V2, V versus V2 or something. And you're working on skills or juggling. And those are skills. And I don't think that as climbers we work on our skills enough. Thank you like, for oh, yeah. saying that. Thank you for saying that because I've been saying that. All along, I tell people, treat climbing like martial arts, because martial arts is my background a little bit, is, is, you know, you may practice one carter over and over and over for a month before they let you move oh, on yeah. to the next one. And climbing, we don't do that. We just do one round. Oh, I did it once. I don't need to do it again. You go, well, wait a minute. Um, why don't you do it until you've mastered the moves? Because there's something there for you to learn. Well, that, that is correct. But then the conversation doesn't really... I think that's where we stall out as a community is like, oh, yeah, I need to work on my footwork. And it's like, well, what about your mm -hmm. footwork? Oh, no, I just my feet don't work really well. Or I just don't feel like it. And it's like there's this lack of understanding of what certain skills are and mm -hmm. how do you work on it. And, yeah, we're young. But I, that mindful, repetitious practice is so important and it, we do need to train more like martial arts, where martial arts, your opponent is always doing something very, you don't know what they're going to do. So mm -hmm. you need to respond with the unknown, and that's very much how climbing is. You're training for an unknown opponent. and But we train more as, um, yeah, we just we don't. It drives me nuts. Yeah, <laughs> myself included. You know, what are your thoughts on the, the Olympics, climbing being in the Olympics, and do you see yourself training any athletes to compete? Uh, I mean, I think the notion of being in climbing being in the Olympics is romantically awesome. I think it's great. Um, I do you think it would be good for I the sport? Uh, it will be different. That's a whole big, long topic Yeah, <laughs> the sport. Uh, I mean, as I age, I miss some things, and the sport is constantly changing and it's growing, and the quantities of people out there. And I think it's great that more and more people are exposed to it. But it's there's a lot of impact on things. Um, but I think it's I think it's great that it's going to be in the Olympics. Uh, yeah. I hope that they get things figured out. It would be nice that they, like it's, how are we going to, at least in the United States, like how are we going to select our people, the people that are going to the Olympics? How are we doing that? Mm -hmm. um, what is the actual format going to be? Um, they have a general idea. 
So, because it's different. If if you're an athlete and you're going to be having to do all three events, which I'm not opposed to, but your training is going to be very different. And for each one, uh, yeah, and how you cycle it and how you prioritize it. Everyone's going to prioritize one thing over another. Some people are going to prioritize their speed climbing because they're really good at it, and other people are like, well, I'm better at bouldering. And how things fall, how the cards fall will be interesting. But um, Do you see yourself uh, coaching any of these? Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, I could see you definitely playing a role there. I would love to. I'd be honored to. Um, But there's a lot of moving parts. and A lot of politics. Yeah. I like to coach. Yeah, well, that's I where like uh, you actually could, you, but you could play a, a major role there uh, to have a coach like you coaching the team in general would be really beneficial. Could be, could be. Uh, yeah. He's like to and, and, and speaking of which, if someone wants to have you coach them, what's the best way for them to reach you? Reach me through my website, climbingsensei.com. I like that because uh, in many ways that it, uh, it relates back to the martial arts. So yeah, it does. Yeah, you're you're like the teacher <laughs> in the kung fu movies. <laughs> yeah, you just need to get a bald head now. <laughs> well, it's, it's coming. <laughs> it's coming. Hey, well, Justin, thank you so much. I really. Truly appreciate you uh, your taking the time to share your thoughts with us and share your knowledge and wisdom. And I know a lot of our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. And I pray that whoever's out there listening right now reaches out to you and 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 has you coach them. So it'd be great. No, thank you, thank you very much for reaching out. I'm glad we made this happen. You got it, man. And uh, don't be surprised with the one of the first people to reach out to you will be me. So <laughs> cool. You got it, man. Take care of yourself. All right. You take care. Bye-bye now. Bye. Well, Justin certainly didn't hold anything back, did he? Gee, wow. Um, He just provided us a wealth of information that until now has been pretty much reserved to the super elite climbers. And like you, I was so busy taking notes, I was completely oblivious to the passing of time. But what I was left with was this one single thought. I would like Justin to coach me during my next training cycle. Wouldn't you? I mean, geez, who doesn't want to take the climbing to a whole other level? I certainly do. If you want to contact Justin, either visit his profile page on TroubleBlack.com, where we provide a link, or go directly to his website at ClimbingSensei.com. Either way, make sure you sign up so you don't miss any of our future podcasts. Until next week, my friends, this is Dan Goodwin with Chill Black TV, your entertainment source for extreme sports.